Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi. Siri. Welcome to High Theory. In this podcast, we get high on the substance of theory. I'm Sharonik Boshu. And I'm Kim Adams. We are two tired academics trying to save critique from itself. Hello, and welcome to High Theory. Today, we are with James Staples to talk about queer mysticism. But before we begin, uh, James, or we know each other for a long time, so I'm going to call you Jamie. Uh, So, Jamie, would you mind introducing yourself to our listeners? Sure. Um, So I am a medievalist. I'm about to start a position at Trinity College in Hartford, where I'll be teaching uh, English literature and specifically medieval English literature. And I've been working on this concept of queer mysticism for a while now. It's kind of been discussed in theory and literature scholarship since the mid-90s, probably. But um, I've been really trying to develop it personally, um, and I have two articles that have just come out. One on the 15th century mystic Marjorie Kemp, just published in Romantic Review, and another published in Exemplaria on the 14th century poem Cleanness. Um, I think that's basically everything I need to say. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, we will link the articles in the show notes. So as we near, I guess, the last of this year's Pride Month, It gives me great joy to ask you the question, what the heck is queer mysticism? I think I want to start with a personal anecdote uh, in a certain sense to kind of center my own attempts at understanding what this concept means. When I was in high school, I was in a relationship with a woman. Uh, I was deeply closeted. I was a member of an evangelical fundamentalist religious group. And I was outwardly deeply homophobic because of how horrified I was about my own queer feelings. I then all of a sudden came upon a poem. Uh, It's St. John of the Cross's Dark Night of the Soul. And this poem electrified me. And so I have a few stanzas that I'll read, if that's okay. Um, They are uh, the translation by A.Z. Foreman. Um, So here are just four stanzas. And in the luck of night, in secret places where no other spied, I went without my sight, without a light to guide, except the heart that lit me from inside. It guided me and shone, surer than the noonday sunlight over me, and led me to the one whom only I could see, deep in a place where only we could be. And on my flowering breast, which I had kept for him and him alone, he slept as I caressed and loved him for my own, breathing an air from redolent cedars blown. And from the castle wall, the wind came down to winnow through his hair, bidding his fingers fall, searing my throat with air, and all my senses were suspended there. Now, this poem is not overly erotic. It's quite romantic, actually. But one of the things that shocked me and surprised me and delighted me was that this was a poem written by a man directed to a beloved who uses male pronouns. And even more complexly, this poem was written in the 16th century, and it was written by a monk. So all of this really surprised me, shocked me, and again, hated me. I I held on to this poem secretly for a very long time. And for whatever reason, the line, the wind came down to winnow through his hair, bidding his fingers fall, 
for the the intimacy of that it is always in, on my mind um so then fast forward a few years um i was a sophomore in college and i had to go to a an academic uh lecture as part of uh, my intro to islam class and i chose the one on medieval poetry because i was a medievalist i still am a medievalist um and i accidentally we might say went to a an organization meeting of uh, the alumni group called GALA, the Gay and Lesbian Association at William and Mary, where the subject of the lecture was St. John of the Cross's Dark Night of the Soul, and specifically with a queer focus. And I was, I, I could feel myself blushing through the entire thing. I looked around and noticed that most of the people around me were queer performing middle-aged people. Um, and so I felt like so completely out of place. And at the same time, like I should be there. Um, I was introduced to a scholar named John Boswell. Um, through his work, he had since passed away. Um, and John Boswell and his book, Christianity, Social Tolerance, and Homosexuality, has been one of the main guideposts, we might say, in my research. Now, there's a lot of problems with Boswell's work, according to modern historians, according to post-Foucauldian historians. Um, but Boswell's main argument was that there were indeed what he called gay people, people who uh, identified sexual attraction to people of the same right. gender, same sex. Uh, there were gay people in the Middle Ages, that there was actually a gay subculture in the Middle Ages, and that rather than being rejected by the church, they were actually tolerated, if not accepted, by the church. So this threw open the doors for me. Um, it eventually, uh, within a few months, I had come out. I had uh, begun dating men, etc. Um, and so... This mystical literature, St. John of the Cross's Dark Knight of the Soul, was kind of my gateway into accepting myself. And I, I want to find evidence, and I, I, I believe that I have found evidence, that this was the case not only for me and maybe John Boswell in the, the 1960s, 1970s, but also for medieval people as well. Yeah. Jamie, thank you for sharing uh, that story with us. This gives us a bedrock for our conversation. So let me ask you my second question, uh, which is, how do we use, or how do you use queer mysticism? There are two kind of practices that we might associate with mysticism. One is called meditation. The other is called contemplation. And these aren't always clearly distinguished, but very often in medieval writers, uh, meditation is the practice of using images or texts or narratives to kind of construct a recreation of an experience. So for example, by the end of the Middle Ages, we have many examples of people reading devotional texts that are highly effective, asking individuals to place themselves in their minds at the foot of the cross, uh, touching Christ's legs as they're bleeding, sticking their fingers into Christ's wound, kissing Christ's wounds, things like this. Um, this is called meditation. Uh, mysticism is more often associated with contemplation which is the idea of taking all of these images and then allowing yourself to strip them away until you're left with this sort of pure nothingness. In this pure nothingness, there is often described a moment of complete understanding, what we might call insight, and a moment of absolute enraptured bliss. Um, and so one of the things that John of the Cross and uh, mystics prior to him, John of the Cross is writing in the 16th century, so he's technically Renaissance Spain, but the mystics writing before him are trying to put into words this feeling of ecstasy, this feeling of bliss. Um, 
and they very often draw on erotic poetry and especially the erotic book of the Bible, the Song of Songs. And I'm happy to talk more about the weirdness right. of that book. Very often in scholarship since the mid 90s, like I said, when people really started thinking about this concept of queer mysticism, um, the sort of more conservative reaction to that is all of this is allegorical, right? That the the moment of contemplative bliss is supposed to be beyond images, beyond mediation. Um, it is sort of a divine nothingness. Some uh, some mystics call it an abyss, an abyss of longing, an abyss of pleasure. Uh, Hadavik of Brabant uh, actually compares it to a feeling of hellishness. It's a heavenly hellishness. It feels like you're in hell, and it's so wonderful. It's really, really paradoxical. Um, and so the conservative reading of this is that these are all allegories for something that's not right. sexual. Now, one of the things that I'm interested in recovering is how these allegorical discourses actually informed the lives of medieval people. And so I'm looking actually for evidence of how the body reacts to this moment of pleasure, how this moment of pleasure might actually um, set a sort of standard for what is acceptable in a person's life. And in my uh, article on cleanness, I draw on Audre Lorde's discussion of the erotic um, in her her text, The Uses of the Erotic. She basically says that uh, if we allow ourselves to feel the erotic side of our experiences fully, then we'll no longer put up with the things that are less than that pleasure, um, actually become more engaged in relational living. We will uh, be less willing to submit ourselves to the tortures of modern day capitalism, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so there is this kind of politics to pleasure that I'm, I'm kind of figuring out through this. And I feel that these mystics are actually using these pleasurable experiences to set different bars for their experience. Or we might say um, they're kind of remapping the possibilities of their present through these moments of ecstasy. Right. There is a book in the Hebrew Bible, the Song of Songs, um, that is incredibly troubling, especially for medieval uh, Christians. Um, it is one of the few books in the Bible that does not mention God at all. And it is presented as a dialogue or conversation between a bridegroom and his bride or the sponsum and sponsa uh, that is a celebration of how great sex feels. And so in the medieval church, uh, which is uh, very centered on celibacy and purity, this text posed a lot of problems. Why is it in the Bible? Um, it is in the Christian Old Testament. And so uh, it had to be allegorized, as they argued. Um, so what this story, uh, according to early Christian and medieval theologians, tells us is not uh, the pleasures of sex between a man and a woman, but the pleasures experienced between the soul and their union with God or with Christ. Um, so it's a really, really strange reading of this text. But to read this text correctly, you have to basically read it as a an anti-sexual erotic text that is actually celebrating the bliss of celibacy. Um, it flips basically the argument on its head or the, the, the text narrative on its head. Um, the thing that becomes really interesting um, is that uh, with a figure like Bernard of Clairvaux in the 12th century, the way that he describes the absolute bliss of his contemplation, this moment of ecstasy, 
is that he explains it using the language of the Song of Songs. So this text that had in a certain sense become desexualized, all of a sudden enters into uh, a discourse that is attempting to describe what the body is feeling. And so however many conservative medievalists today or in the Middle Ages, uh, people who are approaching this text uh, want to argue that this text has nothing really to do with the body, but is more this rhetorical, uh, allegorical, descriptive uh, thing that that operates maybe we might say with a kind of the I think that with this uh, emphasis on the rhetorical uh, we lose sight of the fact that Bernard of Clairvaux is using this language to describe what is in a certain sense a bodily phenomenon and let's talk about Marjorie Kemp specifically yeah so Marjorie is really interesting Um, in the 12th and part of the way through the 13th century, most contemplation is happening in the monastery. Um, we have monks and nuns uh, who have spent their lives learning the correct way to do this, we might say, in the most kind of pragmatic terms. Um, Bernard of Clairvaux, who I've already mentioned, uh, who writes 86 sermons on the Song of Songs and uses that to describe his mystical experience. Um, he and his contemporaries also frequently offer warnings about attempting to do this if you don't know how to do it, uh, attempting to even read the Song of Songs before you've rightly prepared yourself to understand that this isn't about sex, yeah. but is about something more divine. Um, more and more frequently in the 13th, 14th, and 15th centuries, we see theologians worrying that people who are practicing contemplation are actually going out and committing sexual acts in the name of God. Um, there are figures that are uh, frequently lumped together in this sort of pseudo-organized group called the Heresy of the Free Spirit, who basically argue that if you practice contemplation well enough, you can become so united to God that any of your actions that you do will be God-endorsed. Um, and this leads them to arguments like uh, John of Brune, who says that if a man desires to perform the act of sodomy with a man, he may do so freely and lawfully and without any feeling of wrongdoing. Otherwise, he wouldn't have that freedom of spirit. Yeah. Um, so we have a lot of anxiety that contemplation is actually leading to these sexual acts. Marjorie Kemp is fascinating because she is a 15th century woman. Her book is considered the first English autobiography. She was married or continued to be married to a man through her entire uh, adulthood she had 14 children, but after her 14th child, she has this experience uh, where Christ, she says, enters her room, sits at the foot of her bed, and comforts her. And she begins to shift her life to a contemplative and meditative devotion to her new spouse, Christ. Um, or at least Christ is her lover. She eventually ends up marrying Christ's father, the Godhead instead in this really strange ecstatic moment but marjorie is bringing to this experience her kind of worldly experience and she's also coming at this tradition from a much more uneducated and unlearned perspective everything she seems to know about contemplation uh, it appears that she learned it from a priest confessor that she met with regularly the theology that she creates in her experiences is much messier messy insofar as she doesn't seem to be as careful 
about distinguishing what is merely rhetoric versus what is happening in her experiences. And this leads, in my reading of her, to really fascinating applications of these mystical experiences to real life phenomena. Um, I talk a little bit about it. I, I focus more specifically on this moment of she has uh, a, a series of days where she sees image after image of men exposing their penises to her and she's expected to have sex with all of them. And the way this is often read is that uh, she knows that this is demon possession or a demon trying to tempt her away from God and is completely rejecting it. But I read in that much more ambivalence because it seems like she's not quite sure at first whether this is a God-inspired vision or a demonic vision. And so kind of puzzling through that shows us that maybe these ecstasies that the uh, mystics are experiencing are actually much closer to sort of a sexual gratification than than most modern scholarship wants to allow. She tells us, you know, that she's thinking about Christ uh, in these really intimate and sexual ways, that she imagines him on her bed. She plays with his toes in one of his divisions. Um, she has this really orgasmic description of her marriage to God. And then she also tells us that when she sees handsome men walking around town, they inspire in her a further devotion to Christ. And so we see the way that this mystical experience, this contemplative experience, potentially stripped from mediation, is actually working its way into her lived life so that when she sees attractive people, she also wants to fondle them, wants to kiss them, potentially even wants to have sex with them. And so we have to allow for the possibility that these mystical experiences, these very discursively constructed mystical experiences by this point, uh, are also potentially opening up possibilities for a more fully embodied relational experience in the world. Okay. How will queer mysticism save the world? I think this is a great question, and it's actually why I can't stop grappling with what queer mysticism even is, because I I want it to have a political and practical valence, and I think it absolutely does. Um, I think maybe most simply, it creates a space from within Christianity, which in my opinion right now is sort of the most inimical force against queerness in modern day America. It creates a space from within that that actually not only endorses queer identity, but actually uh, sees it as a way of becoming more connected to divinity, to, to God, um, to Christ, etc. And so I think it's kind of undermining uh, fundamentalist Christian rhetoric from within. And um, I, I think that's uh, Foucault actually has a, a, a lecture, uh, I think it was in 1978, where he talks about uh, this exact kind of thing where he says that uh, figures like uh, he names uh, several mystics, Henry Suzo, um, Marguerite Perrette, that they are offering one of the most uh, powerful challenges to the church because they're drawing on the language of the church itself to create this uh, resistance to sort of the overcoding power structures of the church. Um, so I think that that's part of it. But I think the other part of it more in line with what Audre Lorde and others are arguing that I think fits really nicely in the sort of queer liberation movement is that if we can think more expansively about queerness as something that is like an erotic force that challenges us to become more relational and more 
I hate the word authentic, but something like that, more trusting of our own instincts, that we have the opportunity to, I think, literally change change the world, that we can, we can uh, resist power more willingly, communally, together. We can um, reimagine a more utopic existence that we can actually bring about through the the feelings that we have in our bodies. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming to High Theory and talking to us about racism. This was wonderful. Thank you. I had a great time. Thank you for inviting me. And thank you for listening to High Theory. If you like our podcast, please review and subscribe wherever you get your podcast fix. Owen Quinn composes our theme music. Sharonik Bosu and Kim Adams edit our audio. And Sharonik Bosu manages our social media. You can find High Theory on the New Books Network and also on hightheory.net. We hope you have a highly theoretical day.